Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 293 of the Fun with Cars, Formula One, and other motorsports podcast, or episode 27 of 2021. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man who puts the U in Jaguar, Chris Faroche. Hey, Chris. Morning, Robin. I did, so did you watch any of that? Uh, I sent Chris a video on how to have a correct British accent. <laughs> and uh, they were giving these different like little tricks to how to sound more British as opposed to American or any other uh, form of English speaking. Uh, did you watch any of that? Uh, no, I, I thought it was best to leave it to you, mate. I think you're the one who needs to, to work on that, not me. <laughs> well, as I said in my text, they did not address how to pronounce governor once, so I feel like I should actually be making yet another YouTube channel myself to help people along to have proper British accents. Ow! I mean, it's just, you know, it's like your home. Well, as, as I know you're aware, because you've been to the UK a few times, the accent does vary depending on the region that you're in. So obviously, it sounds like you believe Cockney uh, English is maybe the traditional English accent, because um, that certainly sounds like that was, uh, that was the impression you tried to do there. And Cockney rhyming slang is quite, quite a good laugh. But, you know, northern accent, say Liverpool or a Mancunian accent is, is very different. The Yorkshire accent's an absolute classic. And then obviously the Scottish and the Welsh uh, are quite different again. So you have to pick your poison. It's a bit like claiming that a, you know, a, a Boston accent is the same as a, as a Texan accent here. See, I would, I would happily pick my poison in the UK, but the thing is they don't serve it cold enough. Anyway, it is Thursday morning, July 15th, and Chris and I are going to talk about the upcoming sprint qualifying we have at the British Grand Prix, as well as the passing of Argentinian race car driver, Carlos Reutemann. So, Chris, where would you like to begin? Oh, I'd like to start with news. So, neither of the subjects you just oh, mentioned. Oh, neither. That's my favorite so, subject. The biggest news is, and drumroll please, uh, Lawrence Stroll has finally worked out that Aston Martin aren't ready to win the title. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, it's going to be four to five years until they're, they're ready to compete. I think the surprise there is that he didn't know that already. So whether or not he thought they were ready for a title tilt this year, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I will give him a lot of credit. He's investing heavily in, in Aston Martin uh, the, uh, on, on the F1 side as well as on the car production side. But on the F1 side, you know, they're building a new factory at Silverstone. They're going to get their own wind tunnel instead of sharing Mercedes tunnel. They're adding 300 heads. So unlike many teams... 300? How are they doing three, that with the budget cap? Well, that just that, exactly. I mean, it just goes to show that some of the teams have to cut heads to get to the budget cap. But in some other cases, you know, they were operating way below it. So in, in Aston Martin's case, they're able to add engineers and still operate under the budget cap or at the budget cap. So so that certainly all sounds very promising. But I, I agree with him. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine how a team like Aston, who relies so heavily on buying so many components from... Mercedes will ever be able to beat that same team. But, you know, you never know. Well, and if they start becoming real contenders to do exactly that, how interested is Mercedes going to continue to be to sell them things? You know, there, there's obviously several parts to that coin. You know, McLaren was in that position for a little while where Mer McLaren ditched Mercedes 
to go Honda. And then a few years down the road, they're like, hey, Mercedes. And Mercedes said, thanks, but no thanks. And that's how we had the McLaren Renault for a couple of years. And then they were able to work out a deal again. Exactly. So, yeah, that's something to, to watch. Uh, you know, I think that team uh, is a very special team. In its various guises all the way back to Jordan. It's always been a, a team that's appealed to many F1 fans. So it would be great to be able to see them develop to a point where they can actually compete for a title rather than just the odd race win. Uh, so exciting developments, but obviously it's a, it's a bit of a slow burn. Uh, quick update, um, Alfa Romeo has re-signed to be the title sponsor of Sauber, so the team will continue to be known as Alfa Romeo. Um, and that may have implications on on the uh, the driver uh, merry-go-round for the season. So maybe there's slightly more chance that Kimi Raikkonen will extend his career. I um, love it. Maybe an- Antonio Giovinazzi may also uh, continue with Alfa Romeo. But there's a couple of guys um, that, are, that are knocking on the door, Callum Eilert and Robert Schwartzman too, that, that have done very well in the lower formulae uh, that may, may usurp one of those two. But because um, there are noises being made that maybe Kimi's qualifying pace has uh, deserted him. Um, but uh, I think he's still racy enough that maybe he can hold on to that seat and we shall, uh, we shall have to see. And then there's also some speculation that uh, Mercedes could announce their second driver over the course of the Silverstone weekend. But, uh, but we'll have to wait and find out. Um, yeah. Maybe both well, us will hold on or, or maybe, uh, maybe not. Maybe well, uh, a, a Williams driver will, will take that seat. Oh, yes. You know, Latifi has been working really hard and showing real improvement. And it'd be so nice to have a Canadian at a factory team like that. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, the weekend, the Mercedes weekend has begun. It is what? I forget with um, uh, Daylight Savings Times if England's four or five hours ahead of us right now. But either way, it's 2.30, 3.30 then. And yep. uh, so the weekend is well underway as we speak. But no announcement that I have seen yet. Yeah, it's interesting how silly season is playing because we're also in the middle of um, uh, Mercedes working out Hamilton's contract extension. I don't believe that's done yet, right? So, um, Oh, that was announced. Yeah, that was announced uh, last week. Oh, okay. So they're done with Hamilton. He, he, so it's another two years. Um, yeah. extension to his contract, basically. Yeah, that was the only good news Hamilton got at the Austrian Grand Prix. He, he re-signed for two more years. He got a pay rise. Uh, I think it's 80 million quid uh, over the two years. I think he'd been uh, pushed down to just 30 million a year with his one-year extension. So he's managed to get some money back, which I think has made him happy. Um, and so therefore, you know, the question is, who's going who's gonna to fill a second seat? Yeah, I was really was really getting nervous for Hamilton, how he was going to put food on the table. That's right. You know, Ro- Roscoe eats a lot, apparently. Well, and he's got so many tables to put food on. So uh, it's, uh, it's a difficult conversation there. But, yeah, you know, the Mercedes seat is obviously, for very good reason, still highly coveted. I, I don't know. I think George has, has proved he's ready, but... You know, there's always a lot of mitigating factors that are going into going into decisions like this. So it'll be interesting to see what is announced. I know one thing about Lewis Hamilton. He seems fairly supportive of the sprint qualifying that we've got coming up. He was interviewed by 
Will Buxton uh, recently, and he said that you know it essentially been the same his entire Formula One career, and he was looking for something that would shake things up. So he is pro sprint qualifying. That is starting well, effectively, it's starting tomorrow. So that's right. Uh, yeah, they're gonna F1 are gonna trial this at three races this season, and yeah. Silverstone's the first first one, the first guinea pig, if you like. And so, yeah, the whole uh, Grand Prix weekend, uh, the whole format changes. So we lose uh, free practice three um, and qualifying, traditional qualifying as we know it, um, will move to Friday. And um, on Saturday, we'll have this new sprint qualifying, um, which will actually set the order for the race on Sunday. And it's a sprint qualifying race. It is... uh 100 kilometers well, not, i believe they don't want they don't want you to call it a race robin it's a sprint qualifying <laughs> we all know qualifying. it's a race but you're not supposed to refer to it as a race because a that may detract qualifying. from the race on sunday <laughs> it is a sprint qualifying wheel to wheel event and yeah, there you go and it is going to be worth three points to the winner two points to second place and a single point for third and the entire finishing order of this wheel-to-wheel event will um, establish the order for the starting grid on Sunday. I was, I have to say, a little bit surprised that they're going to take the exact same qualifying format from Saturday and just move it to Friday. That that just, the whole Q1, Q2, Q3 knockout part of it, that was all kind of a build-up of who's going to start where on Sunday. And that whole buildup of who's going to start where on Saturday to find out who's going to start where on Sunday, that seems a bit overwrought to me. Well, I think that I think the qualifying format has been quite popular with the knockout rounds. It, uh, you know, obviously it was introduced a few years ago uh, to get rid of long periods of qualifying where nobody was on the track because everyone would wait until the end of the session when the most rubber was down to actually set their lap. So there used to be long periods of non-activity. Uh, so it was always a bit of a uh, you know, disappointment. So by having three sessions, it does guarantee track action. And it, it does muddy, you're absolutely right, it does muddy the waters because now the person who sets the fastest time of the weekend, which is usually the pole position winner in, in the qualifying session, won't actually get attributed the pole position for that weekend because that will actually be derived from the sprint qualifying on the Saturday. So that all the stats surrounding pole positions are now going to be complicated by the introduction of this new format, which is a little bit of a shame. The, the interesting thing is there are other changes. So the, the whole tyre complexity that usually dominates qualifying, you know, which tyre uh, compound people yes. use in different sessions, which is what they, you know, the quickest time that you set in Q2 is what you have to start on Where's in the race. race start but that, tire. That's right. That's right. But that's now been eliminated. So they get softs throughout qualifying and they get a free tire choice for the, the race on Sunday, the Grand Prix itself. So that, that nuance has, has been eliminated. So basically we're going to have a straight shootout qualifying, everyone on the same softer, softest compound tire. And then that'll set the grid for the sprint qualifying session on Saturday. And then we get this, as you said, 100 kilometers, 17 laps. It'll be about 25 to 30 minute long race, which there'll be no strategy. There'll be no pit stops unless, of course, there's contact. No scheduled pit stops, I think That's is right. the best way to say it. Yeah. So it's supposed this to be a wheel to wheel event. Sprint. Exactly. <laughs> it's supposed to be a sprint, it's supposed to be lots of action. 
and that will generate the the starting order. Um, and that, of course, there won't be a there won't be a fastest lap point. But as you mentioned, there will be a few points for the for the podium finishes. Now we won't have a podium either for the the, the winners of the sprint qualifying. They will yeah. get presented. Um, the they're going back to a way old tradition of the of the uh, garlands or wreaths that used to be presented to racing drivers back in the 60s and 70s. And in fact, I've won a couple myself. They're kind of cool, but they're bringing that back. So they'll get these wreaths at the end of the race and then they'll do a lap of honor, but there won't be a podium uh, as such. That'll be reserved for the Sunday uh, top three. Um, And there's also a lot of, there's a lot of complexity around Park Ferme. So Oh, yes, because I believe it's Friday afternoon, effectively, that the cars are in Park Ferme. Yeah, but then it frees up for FP2 again, and then they go back into Park Ferme. And there's lots of different rules about what can be changed and what can't. So it's all got quite complicated. But essentially, they're trying to prevent people running a, a, a specific qualifying setup on the cars and then a race setup on their cars. So there are restrictions about what you can change between sessions, but they still want FP2 to be a meaningful um, development session. Um, but things like brake pads, the power unit and gearbox cooling, weight distribution can all be can all be modified. And only certain parts can be replaced. So for example, if you get front wing damage, you could put a new front wing on, things like that. Um, there are opportunities to tweak the suspension uh, settings between the qualifying and the sprint. Um, but otherwise, yeah, the, the cars will be locked down a lot more over the weekend. So what that essentially means is that people who are quick straight from the beginning, from FP1, are really going to have a big advantage. And uh, those who are not are going to be struggling throughout the weekend. So it might um, it might have the effect of, of shuffling the order up a little bit based on those who who turn up with a, with a setup that's immediately quick and those who have to sort of dial the car in over the course of a weekend. So it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, there's, there's hope. And I'm, I'm concerned about two things. It could go well, but just as you say, there are a lot of complicated rules here. And Formula One is already on the difficult side for the layman to follow. And kind of getting a sense of what's going on throughout the weekend is just getting, you know, there's always more layers being added to it. And that part concerns me a little bit. It's it's obviously interesting that effectively now we have two races in one, even though one is name, only one is named a race. Um, the other part of it is I'm concerned that while it could shake up the order a little bit, it also very well could just give the leading team more opportunities to show that they're the leading team. And we just have more examples, uh, not fewer, that uh, these are the top teams and we're not learning anything new by it. You know what I mean? And I have to say that I've I've really liked the knockout qualifying that we've had for the last several years. But there is part of me that misses the... There's just something they did for at least one one year, I think a few, two or three, where everyone got a single lap and the hour-long qualifying session was set up such that it was the I, I don't remember if it was championship order or P2 order or whatever but the qualifying was everyone got a lap on the track by themselves and that certainly wasn't as entertaining and intense as knockout qualifying is but it did give each car, each team, each driver, the chance to showcase 
their talents and what they could do. And it did throw in different variables if weather was coming through during qualifying. And there was also the factors of rubber coming in versus not coming in. So there were these different factors there. And I actually liked that qualifying session as well, uh, doing it that way. But, you know, I'm certainly open enough to see what this is like, to see what the British Grand Prix is like with this new kind of format. And, uh, you know, it has potential to add more interest to the weekend and more chances for the teams to strategize uh, drivers and indeed constructors championships tallies. Yeah, one, one thing I like about it is the fact that Friday becomes more meaningful. So I think for a lot of casual fans, Friday is a non-event, right? They just don't tune in or follow what's going on in practice sessions because the, the practice doesn't really have any direct bearing. Obviously, they're setting up the car, but it doesn't have a direct bearing on either your qualifying or your, or your race position. Now, Friday becomes meaningful. It, you have an actual qualifying session that sets the grid order for Saturday. So that may actually drive both interest at the track and on television uh, for F1, which I think is a positive. Um, and also, it maintains Friday as, a, as an actual F1 Grand Prix weekend day because there was some talk about trying to condense the weekend into just two days, which I'm not a fan of. I like, I like going to uh, Friday sessions, honestly, uh, when I go and visit uh, races. So I'm, I'm a fan of keeping Fridays. So if this is one thing that helps to cement Friday on, the, uh, on a Grand Prix weekend, then I think that's a positive. And then obviously you now have a mini race of so people with very short attention spans that maybe they don't want to watch the whole Grand Prix on a Sunday or just watch the highlights. They now get two bites of a, of a cherry to, to see some racing over the course of a weekend. I don't know how much it's really going to mix things up. I think we'll have to see a few examples of this format to understand if it can really introduce um, a big variety in race order and finishing order. Um, but, you know, I, I'm very open to the idea and obviously they can tweak it as they as they trial it. If they find issues with the format, they, they can probably tweak it to improve it. So I'm, I'm curious to see how this works and uh, quite excited for it, actually. Yeah, I'm, you know, there's, it would be foolish, I think, to not at least give this a try and have an open enough mind to see what is the effect and I think that Formula One is lucky in a sense that we have a real intra-team, uh, excuse me, inter-team battle going on for the championship. And if that shakes things up in a meaningful way, uh, that would be compelling as well to really add genuine tension to who's going to be where. And just as you say, that that tension starts building up much more rapidly on Friday, not Saturday. But... We also have to keep an open mind and understand that this could absolutely go bust. You know, so we just have to let it play out, see what happens, and uh, see how entertained we are. And I think that you can rely on the fact that Chris and I will have plenty of strong opinions about that. Maybe they'll agree, maybe they won't, but uh, we're going to find out in just a few days' time. Yeah. Absolutely. Should we talk about... Uh the sad passing of uh, Carlos Reutemann. The politician. You know, <laughs> it's it's really fascinating the lives, the different lives people lead after their racing careers. And, you know, he was a senator for a long time after being a race car driver. And he's a race car driver with 12 Grand Prix wins and several 
near misses, uh, almost getting the drivers' championship. Yeah, that's right. He he got pipped by Nelson Piquet in 1981 by one point, um, and really was in in a very strong position to win the title for a variety of reasons. I think the, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I never watched him race. It, it's a bit before my time. He was active between 1972 and 82. Um, did 146 race entries. Um, and raced for some, some of the, the absolute legends of the sport. So he started out at Brabham. Um, then then had a couple of seasons at Ferrari alongside the likes of Nicky Lauda. Uh, and Gilles Villeneuve um, and then had a season at Lotus before finishing his career at Williams alongside Alan Jones helped Williams uh, to the um, to, to the Constructors Championship uh, in 1980 um, had some had some big wins one of his most famous wins was uh, 1975 at the Nordschleife uh, so definitely on his day was supremely talented and, and very very competitive yeah and and but also a bit inconsistent you know it seemed like he had uh, a bit of a reputation of if he wasn't feeling the car or that that he would fall way off pace and so he was not i'm not even sure how to describe it but it seemed like he had just immense pace when he was in the right mood and i don't mean that to be flippant but just it, it, there seemed to be something behind it because obviously it, this was well before my time of closely following Formula One as well, you know, since I was, you know, not born for most of it. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely spot on. So interestingly, we've just had uh, the Goodwood Festival of Speed in the UK and they did a tribute actually to uh, Reutemann. Uh, Gordon Murray was the chief engineer at Brabham when Reutemann raced for that team and, and raced in the BT44B and they ran that car up the hill uh, at Lord March's driveway and um, it's quite a classic uh, shape the the rear wheel size is so much bigger than the front it's one of those sort of oh it's cartoon cartoon style F1 era cars. yeah it's, it's like it's a caricature cool. of an F1 That's car right. these days yeah, yeah. and Murray uh, yeah, obviously spoke about uh, Reutemann and, and said that he was an incredibly laid-back driver um, compared to some of the others that he worked with, uh, and said he, you know, he was definitely one of the most talented uh, drivers uh, of of that era. But his head had to be in the right place to deliver. So pretty much what you just said that, you know, some days he seemingly wasn't happy or was convinced that someone else was faster, and would sort of just, um, you know deliver a, a sort of a mediocre result but other days he was almost untouchable when he felt he had the right car the right setup um he could be you know he could he could dominate so interesting character i mean i think it's worth talking about the 81 season because it was quite controversial for a variety of reasons i mean it just goes to show uh, if you look into the 81 season how much the sport has changed i mean it started out with a season opener in south africa that reutemann won but it didn't count for the championship because four teams didn't show up. So Ferrari, <laughs> Alfa Romeo, Renault and Ligier wow. didn't attend for various political reasons. So therefore, his win didn't count. Um, if, it, you know, if it had counted, he would have won the title. And then he yeah, had a very... that's amazing. He had a, he had a very fractious uh, season with his teammate, Alan Jones. He, he, I guess he, he was asked to hand over the win that he was... Uh, 
he was heading toward a, at the Brazilian Grand Prix to Alan and refused. And so Alan Jones was then, you know, very upset with him and, and, and refused to sort of assist Reutemann's title effort subsequent to that race. Uh, but yet in the German Grand Prix, Reutemann had to give his car to Jones and it ran what, what was known as the T-car in that race. And yeah. And then had a DNF, even despite qualifying third. So, so obviously that cost him uh, significantly as well. But I think the most, you know, the most mystery surrounds the season finale, which was this classic track at Caesar's Palace that was basically a converted parking lot. Um, yes, but, uh, one of those wasn't. amazing classic American tracks. <laughs> um, you know, Reutemann was on pole and um, had quite a few points over PK. Really, it should have been a walk in the park to win the title, but somehow uh, just didn't seem to be on it. Uh, ended up finishing eighth. PK uh, got enough points to, to, to win the title. And to this day, people like Patrick Head, uh, you know, remain a little bit mystified what happened that day. I guess there was nothing that they found that was essentially wrong with the car, but he just didn't have the pace. So one of those sort of curious drives that... Uh, ultimately cost him the biggest prize in the sport, sadly, for him. Yeah, absolutely right. And there is one other little just point I want to make. You know, he had um, 11 years in racing in Formula One, uh, 72 to 82, but uh, 1982 was just a couple uh, a couple of races, and he didn't seem to finish the 82 season, based on what I see. And this goes back to this was the era that you and I've discussed before where it was right around 15 grand prix a year and you know you can see his 10 year race 10 year race career 146 races you know so right around that 15 race average and you know seemed like seemed like a nice number and so that also feels a bit quaint compared to modern racing this year right and the other thing I noticed is if you look at his record, you know... Well, just, just of, can I just yeah, jump please, in there go for ahead. a second? Yes. So, so there's a couple of theories as to why he walked away in 82. So obviously he, he's an Argentinian national um, and he was racing for a British team, Williams. So in 82, uh, there was the Falklands War. So Argentina and Britain went to war over the tiny islands in the South uh, Atlantic. Um, I, I mean, so very. Some, I mean, some, deep, deep in the Arctic South, I believe. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, and so you know, there's some theories that he felt uncomfortable in that environment, and obviously, you mentioned his political career that he subsequently went into. So obviously, uh, that was a difficult situation for him. But again, Patrick Head um, basically said he he just lost lost interest. His his heart and head wasn't in it anymore, and, and so he decided to. to to retire, so a couple of different theories there, but but I agree that there's that uh, was a very difficult time between those two countries, um, and probably didn't help uh, his continuation in the sport. Anyway, I interrupted yeah. you. Carry carry on. No, it's quite all right. Uh, it's, those are interesting points. But the other thing that I noticed, though, looking through his racing career, just how many retirements there were. I mean, the reliabilities of the car were nothing compared to today and especially in the in the 70s you know 1972 seventh place retired 13th 12th 8th retired 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 fourth retired you know 1973 uh one two three four six retirements 74 
six retirements. You know, 75. God, I think I'm looking at two, five, I, 10 retirements. I mean, or no, 76. He had 10 retirements. It's just been, it's just, <laughs> you know, there was a much, you know, much more serious uh concern of your own life but also just the car's ability to survive the grand prix was so it's just interesting to look at this time period of a racing career and remember how much different it used to be yeah i mean if you if you listen to some of the the older wiser heads in formula one people like gordon murray or patrick head it is astonishing how small the teams were back in the, in the 70s and, and early 80s uh, you know Williams if we take that as an example literally had a handful of of people you know you're talking about you know a few dozen um, total personnel so that that's engineering and and the mechanics uh, and yep. then you know all the people that are also doing all the logistics and transportation of the cars uh, the teams were tiny and, and they really uh, didn't have the resources available to do you know full-on reliability testing that they they can do now and uh, you know a lot of the components were purchased of course many teams were running the standard Cosworth DFE engine at the time um, but some were buying standard gearboxes some were trying to develop their own um, and yeah absolutely reliability just wasn't nowhere near what it is today um, and and you know it led to many opportunities or or near, near misses as a consequence um, but yeah, you're right. It, it, it is something you, you quickly forget. And you, we sort of got accustomed to this phenomenal reliability these days. And it, it was very different back in the day. I mean, one of the things that they talk about a lot was, of course, it was all manually shifted gearboxes. So oh, sure. uh, the, the semi-automatic transmission didn't come in until, until the 90s, introduced by John Barnard and Ferrari in the 640. And prior to that, one of the ways that typically F1 drivers used to see opportunities to make passes was for missed gear shifts, especially at track <laughs> like Monaco. Sure. And of course, that just doesn't, doesn't happen anymore unless there's a software glitch, right? So, yeah, the sport is it's very hard to compare uh, periods from, you know, essentially 50 years ago now. Um, it's a very different sport, but still fascinating nonetheless. The other thing that caught my eye about Reutemann was the fact that he competed in two World Rally Championship rallies, yeah, both in Argentina. and scored points. Yeah, that's right. Um, two entries, two podiums, uh, but in 1980 and 85, one with Fiat, one with Peugeot. So, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely a very talented uh, car driver, no doubt about it. Yeah, and, you know, I think that... You can look back at a career like Reutemann's and say, wow, he lived a, a full life, a multifaceted life. And I think that you have to look back at his at the racing part of his career and just have real respect. You know, he 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 achieved a lot and he did so with a, several different teams and including big iconic names that we still look at today. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, obviously, well, thoughts go out to his, his family. Absolutely. And friends and, uh, rest in peace. And um, there is one more thing to talk about, of course, and uh, it's actually two more things because I have since released two videos, and uh, you can't see it, but I am holding up two fingers as I do this. I am uh, speaking with my hands. Um, but uh, one was... Uh, actually a pair of cars so two videos three cars uh for 2022 bmw has two new battery electric vehicles coming out a sedan 
called the I-4 and an SUV, which they call SAV for sports activity vehicle, the iX. And these are two different cars on two different platforms and each platform is unique to the standard BMW platforms, although I'm sure there is sharing. As a structural engineer yourself, Chris, I am sure that you have at least a little bit of side-eye going on when you hear new platforms, but you know they are dedicated EV platforms in the sense that there is, from the ground up, built in a place for the battery packs. Um, I have a large suspicion that subframes for front and rear suspension components, etc., um, have some carryover, but still... We've got two new electric vehicles from BMW, each one um, claiming 300 miles of range. So battery electric vehicles, according to claims, are really starting to inch towards what a tank of gas will do in terms of driving range. Do they have the new controversial front grille? They do, except they're not called front grills anymore. They are called intelligent panels or intelligence panels, something like that, um, <laughs> because they're not grills. They're just blank shapes that house things like adaptive cruise control sensors and parking sensors and things like that. But yeah, that like 30s era BMW grill is is on both of these cars, yes. Yeah, I know the 4 Series has been quite controversial. Yeah, well, it's, and the M3 and M4. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's uh, not that many fans out there. I guess it's similar to when uh, Chris Bangle introduced some of the styling modifications uh, way back 20 years ago now. It was something that took a while to get adjusted to, wasn't it? So maybe we'll get used to it in a, in a few months or years. But right now, I find it hard to look at, honestly. Well, as I said in my uh, BMW M3 competition video, as I'll just just call out all the videos I've done these last few months, um, it's a controversial shape, and it is, I will say, growing on me, although slowly. (laughs) So, (laughs) but if you want to talk about big grills, we can talk about the other video I did, which was on the 2021 Nissan Armada, and that is appropriately named because it is very big, 208.9 inches long, uh, 75.8 inches tall, 79.9 inches wide. This thing is a hoss. It makes the Land Cruiser look diminutive, uh, Mr. Toyota family. So it is, this is a, it's a real thing, that Nissan Armada. It was updated for 2021, so it's got new styling and some new interior bits, things like that. And it also has a brand new Nissan logo which says Nissan, it's clean and simple in my mind. And uh, I'm sure some people find it beautiful and some people find it other. But that has a 5.6 liter naturally aspirated V8. So quite the opposite of what those BMWs are doing because fuel economy on the Armada is 13 miles per gallon in the city, 18 on the interstate, 15 combined. <laughs> so is it, is it true that vehicle was, was designed to fit large music boxes in it? in which case the former CEO could be hustled out of the country at a moment's notice. (laughs) (laughs) Possibly. I will give that, I will give that a definitely maybe. It it has, it has, um, I think it's almost or just over 95 cubic feet of cargo space with the seats folded. So, and that's a, that's a pure gas powertrain right. lineup or, right. or they got any hybrids no hybrids in there either no nope, no nope, no nope. the armada oh, it, the, i mean it 
it's it's got to burn enough fuel for the fleet, you know. So. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and gas is, is certainly up there at the moment, isn't it? I know $4 a gallon is something that causes a lot of people a lot of pain. So, um, yeah, that's brave. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we were. it wasn't much more than a year ago that prices were falling to $2 a, gall- a gallon because of the first shutdown from the pandemic and uh, that, cut off, that cut off demand for fuel economy for fuel, but that shot right back up. So, yeah. Anyway... Great videos is the point. The point is you'll be dazzled and amazed by my videos and just endlessly entertaining to hear me talk about cars. The BMW videos, I didn't drive those, of course. Those were just introductions. But I did interview um, one Don Smith, who is the product manager for BMW USA, and he gave a lot of insights on those two new battery electric vehicles. And then the Nissan Armada is a drive. I did drive it, and... uh, I did burn all of the fuel. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. Good to know. But Chris and I... You turned it completely bone dry, did you? (laughs) You gave you a full tank. They they 100% had enough to get out of my driveway. I know that for sure. (laughs) But Chris and I will be back to podcast again in just a few days' times. But for now, I want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcasts. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice. Your choice you get to choose by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. And check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. Chris, what a lovely morning to chat. Thank you again. Thank you, Robin. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. Goodbye.